3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is 7am and today is Tuesday the 28th of November 2023. My name is Vung and in the studio with me today are Carnegie and Francis. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Have we got any stories from the weekend? Um, no. No stories from the weekend. Um, my eight-month-old child is going through a nine-month, oh, well, nearly nine-month leap where um, she's learning all these new things, which is really exciting. That mm. must be so yeah. amazing to be able to witness. It's really cool to see. Like a little baby learn stuff and like realize that there's a whole world. It's very cool. Mm, and like their their own person, you know, experiencing things that we pos- like we can't even try to yeah yeah understand from exactly. their perspective. That is very cool. And by eight months, I guess yeah, they've got like personality, and you can sort of see who they're going to be later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's um very very bizarre to watch, but exciting. But super exciting. <laughs> okay, let's talk about what we've got coming up on today's show. So we're starting off by speaking with Kit McMahon, who is the CEO of Wise, which is Women's Health in the Southeast. Uh, this is. We wanted to bring you this interview as part of the 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence, um, which kicked off a couple of days ago on the 25th of November. So um, we'll be speaking to Kit about um, women's health services and um, the impact that that has um, on on the community and um, what we can do to make it um, better for so many people. So that's coming up at 7.15. And at 7.30, we'll be replaying a conversation that Marissa from Doin Time had with activist Pamela Kerr about the uh, recent court ruling um, ending or making indefinite detention unlawful. So that's coming up at 7.30. Then at 7.45, we'll be speaking with... Uh, one of the young women who marched 640 kilometres as a part of uh, Refugee Wave, which is Refugee Women Action for Visa Equalities, a big march from Melbourne to Canberra to fight for the rights of um, people, of refugees who are here in limbo um, and fight for their right to live here permanently. Uh, at 8 o'clock, we'll hear from Jaya Keeney, who's a lecturer in gender studies at the University of Melbourne. Uh, Jaya is going to speak with us uh, today about her new book, Making ba- Gabies Queer Reproduction and Multiracial Feeling. Uh, so looking forward to speaking with Jaya at 8. 
And then to end the show, we will be speaking with uh, Giselle Naev, who is a Year 11 student, um, socialist activist and organizer with school students for Palestine about the recent school strike for Palestine that took place on Thursday. So that's our show for today. Uh, we'll be back with the news headlines right after this. <laughs> What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. So here are the news headlines for today. Uh, This morning we've woken up to the news that the four-day humanitarian pause in Gaza has been extended by two days. Uh, Qatar's foreign minister has announced a deal has been reached. Uh, Hamas says the truce has extended in agreement with Qatar and Egypt. Uh, and Israel had said it was open to extend the pause in fighting in exchange for release of more uh, captives held in Gaza. While this brings some temporary relief, the international community is calling for a lasting ceasefire. And meanwhile, Palestinian activist groups in Australia say ceasefire is not enough given the long-standing oppression of the Palestinian people. Uh, And we've heard statements uh, from people such as Francesca Albanese, who was... uh, on breakfast yesterday in a recorded interview pointing to the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people under the fog of war and the protracted impunity of Israel. Uh, The day before the true Gaza authorities had the death toll at close to 15,000. We'll hear later this morning from one of the thousands of students who walked out last Thursday to strike for Palestine. Uh, This was the biggest student protest for Palestine in Australian history. And high school activists have also said that the truce announced this week is not uh, a good step towards justice for Palestinians. Uh, Meanwhile, the Palestinian Feminist Collective released a statement on Sunday to mark the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Uh, This collective calls on feminist co-strugglers and all people of conscience to once and for all shut down colonial feminism. Uh, And in their statement, they describe the way Western and colonial discourses and policies, uh, including what we see in Western media, deploys the language of liberating women to justify invasions, genocides, military occupations, Um, And colonial feminism depicts Palestinian women as helpless victims in need of saving, while also rendering them disposable, threatening and deserving of death. 
Uh, the collective has also noted that Palestinian men are depicted as brutal aggressors and sexual predators and also loveless fathers who use their children as human shields. So this Palestinian feminist collective has um, reaffirmed that what's happening in Palestine is a feminist issue uh, and called on all of us to shut down um, colonial feminism and say no to genocide. In the Australian context, we're also seeing attention to gender-based violence during this UN campaign of 16 Days of Activism. Uh, and in an article yesterday in the Canberra Times, um, Professor Kate Fitzgibbon, member of Monash University's Gender and Family Violence Centre, and uh, Serena McDuff, acting CEO of Respect Victoria, wrote an article which was comparing recent personal safety survey data with uh, this year's National Community Attitude Survey. And they found some troubling findings in how community attitudes on gender-based violence in Australia differ from reality. So a couple of key points, uh, 41% of Australians think that domestic violence is committed equally by men and women, but national data consistently shows that uh, most people, men, women and gender diverse who experience violence do so at the hands of a male perpetrator. Um, also, nearly a quarter of Australians believe that many women exaggerate the extent of men's violence against women, according to this survey data. But the ABS data shows that 9.9 million women in Australia have experienced violence, emotional abuse or economic abuse by a partner since the age of 15. Um, also, what we've seen as per the Counting Dead Women's research data is that 54 women have died violently so far this year. Uh, another point in these attitudes is that one in four Australians believe that a woman is partly responsible for the violence inflicted against her if she does not leave an abusive relationship, uh, but when she does try to leave, we don't believe her or apportion blame to something she must have done. So Australian women are then in a lose-lose situation. Uh, and finally, this year's personal safety survey looked at um, economic abuse for the first time, and we see then the intersection of financial insecurity and domestic violence. Um, many Australian women or gender diverse people experiencing violence navigate the impossible choice of living with violence or facing homelessness and poverty. Uh, also in the news today, uh, we've seen the Albanese government um, throwing further money to security agencies to monitor the release of detainees previously held in indefinite detention. This was following the High Court ruling on November 8, which deemed indefinite immigration detention unlawful. Uh, we've seen the Australian government respond by setting up more security measures um, on those who've been released to maybe stateless um, and organisations between the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Border Force to ensure detainees adhere to strict new conditions which are placed upon their visas. Um, refugee groups have um, called attention to the um, problematic uh, human rights issues in terms of how Australia treats stateless persons and non-Australian citizens. And we expect to hear the details of the High Court ruling which deemed immigration detention um, unlawful for indefinite uh, time periods uh, released later today, this afternoon. 
Uh, finally, in the news today, um, in the age, we're seeing reports that the Victorian government is increasing funding to expand the number of GPs trained to provide gender affirming care and prescribe hormones to uh, transgender people from the age of 16. So we're seeing um, organisations uh, such as Youth Community Health uh, provide increased access to gender-affirming care across the state. Uh, at the same time, however, we're seeing um, reports of very long waiting lists um, and uh, trans activist groups saying that um, gender-affirming care is um, not accessible and not affordable. So uh, it remains to be seen um, how much impact uh, this will have. And finally... We wanted to touch on something we uh, brought up last week. We mentioned that Maribyrnong Council was putting forward a motion to support Palestine on Tuesday, the 21st of November. Uh, and the motion passed at the time, but support from one of the councillors has since been rescinded. Uh, all listeners can help stop Maribyrnong Council from reversing this pro-Palestine motion by attending the next council meeting on the 12th of December as well as emailing the councillors that are involved in trying to um, change the change the decision. You can follow FOE Melbourne or Socialist Councillor Jorge Horquera on uh, Instagram for the councillors' contact details and for information on the upcoming meeting. This is uh, a really unfortunate um, thing to happen However, yesterday, Dandenong Council has joined Maribyrnong Council in passing a pro-Palestine motion, um, which is really good to see, and we hope that all our listeners can urge our local councils to follow their lead. So those are the news headlines for today. We're going to jump straight into a song. This is uh, called Made for Silence by Maisha. I um, actually heard it while listening to um, the most recent episode of Rotations, which is a music show here on 3CR. It was hosted by our friend on Thursday Breakfast, Inez. So if you haven't done so, uh, please check out that playlist. Um, but for now, here it is. It's Made for Silence by Maisha. You wrong, then you lose what you have trying to handle that I haven't moved beyond. My anger is not quiet, but I taught it to be still. My hunger is not mild, but I trained it not to kill this mouth to cool run wild. But I've shown it greater skill. My love beats louder still. You talk, but you got a mouth.
song Made for Silence by Maisha. The 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence is an annual international campaign that kicks off on 25th of November, which is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and runs until the 10th of December, which is Human Rights Day. We would like to acknowledge this period of activism by starting the show um, speaking with Kit McMahon, who is CEO of Women's Health in the South East, otherwise known as WISE. Kit has nearly two decades of experience across education, training and not-for-profits and has consistently and passionately advocated for gender equality, empowering women and girls. Alongside her work at WISE, she's Deputy Chair Director of Volunteering Australia as well as Director for Tradeswomen Australia. And she joins us on the show this morning to talk about the latest report, Return on Equity, Health and Economic Dividends from Investing in Women's Health Services. Thank you for joining us on 3CR Breakfast Kit. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, so we wanted to start this morning by um, asking for your reflections on uh, the 16 days against gender-based violence and the role that healthcare um, and healthcare services can play in this ongoing work. Yeah, yeah. So so 16 days is a great uh, time of solidarity, of walking for those who are um, victims, survivors of family violence in all its forms, but also a time for the sector to come together and also connect with each other to, you know, remove that, that cognition. And I think for the women's health sector, making sure our health system is aware and alive to the detrimental impacts of family violence that is prevalent in our community is part of our, our core work. Um, we know that uh, women and gender-diverse people suffer uh, immeasurably um, from family violence. And we also know that women and people who identify um, as women have a uterus who also come from other, um, you know, communities and cultures and marginalised groups doubly, trebly suffer as a consequence of family violence. So our work is is about trying to help and support our health system to understand that and to support and look out for even the health impacts of family violence across our community. Yeah, definitely. And on this show, we've talked about before how a lot of women and gender diverse people can feel um, a lack of trust within the healthcare system, especially like you just mentioned, women from perhaps migrant refugee backgrounds, First Nations communities. I was wondering if you could talk then about the impact of women's health services specifically, um, uh, the impact that that has on our communities uh, from a healthcare perspective, but also looking at it from a social and economic perspective as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. So women's health services work in what's called primary prevention um, parts of healthcare, um, which is part of the healthcare system. So that's basically, we are 20 kilometres up the road with all the signs saying, look out, go the other way, do something different, right? That's, that's sort of what we do. So by doing that, actually, what we do is we stop the illness, we stop the disease, we stop the ill health and, and seek to promote well-being, right, before it hits our hospital system. Right? Now, because of that, 
And we're not the only ones that do that. I just, I just want to say that there's many other great organisations that do that in various ways. But because we do that, you know, there's a whole range of benefits for that. So we know now from data um, that the Victorian average of family violence is less than the rest of the country. Um, we know that because of this work, there are fewer young women, fewer teenagers um, being isolated and bearing the consequences of, of having um, children in, in their teenage years. And we also know that um, we save um, Victoria around 1.4 million because of reductions in things like sexually transmitted diseases and, and things like that. So there's, there's an economic value. But the other thing too, because I think we can kind of get you know a bit swept up in that, it also has a community value. It helps with really important things like reducing isolation, improving cohesion, um, about building relationships across divides in community. It gets community more connected together. And at times, you know, where we're seeing, well, at least wise staff, and I'm sure you're hearing it too through your work on 3CR, uh, you know, we're hearing more and more stories of crisis of people um, facing great difficulties, cost of living, the stories of climate change, the stories of war. Those things are really important for people's health. Um, But as I said also, to make sure that our overburdened health and hospital system um, is supported um, uh, to prevent more people from from going into them. Yes, and and as we head into the future with more uncertainty surrounding things like uh, the climate catastrophe and... Mm. uh, you know, still operating in a um, in an environment where where COVID is um, still you know a major threat to our health. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, these services are becoming increasingly important for a myriad of reasons, as you just yeah. explained. Um, yeah. Kit, I was wondering if you could just touch on you know gender equality and how that actually impacts health outcomes for women yeah. and gender diverse people. Yeah. Well, look today. The national agency um, called uh, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency is releasing its annual gender pay gap report and, and they've, they've released the, uh, the headline that says our gender pay gap falls 1.1 percentage points to a new low of 21.7%. So that means that if you're a woman, identifies a woman, you take home 78, 78% of what a, a male takes home. So in very crude terms, one way the gender inequality affects women and gender diverse people as well, is actually get less money. They get less resources to support their life. That's the first thing that happens. Right? The second thing that happens is that we have these policies and systems and structures that sort of embed because of years of, of frankly, discrimination and oppression. They embed disadvantage in it if you identify as a woman or a gender, uh, as a gender diverse person. Right? And that can be things like you know, the service in the health system only opens between the hours of 2.30 and 4.30 on a Wednesday and Thursday. Now, if you're connected to the real world, that's child pick-up time, right? How is that helping and being available to everyone? Um, it's even things like if you live in a rural or remote area, all the services are, are away from you in the city. That's a disadvantage. You'll just, you know, and for rural women, for rural women, gender diverse people, it just means that you just don't look after yourself. There's 
you just put yourself second and third, and that's particularly the case when we think of women's pain, the pain that, that, that women carry, which is reported regularly. So I think gender inequality um, affects across the whole system. And often it's seen as a woman's problem, but it's not. Here's the good news. Gender inequality is actually good for everyone, right? What I often say to men when I'm talking to about this is, for you, it means you can have more choices about being the person and being the man that you want to be, right? For LGBTIQ plus people, particularly young people, it means that we enable them to be their true self, that we enable them to connect with the person that they want to be for their future. So there's so many ways that inequality affects all of us. And because of this inequality, because of this discrimination, we know it has a direct impact on our health and our well-being and our rights to I think that's a really um, important note to end on there, Kit, um, no talking about how, like you just mentioned, it doesn't just affect or impact women and doesn't have benefits just for women but the entire community. I mean, you know, women and gender-diverse people are uh, at the heart of our communities, and so, like you said, so many of the um, ac- um, you know lack of access to healthcare, or or um, yeah, it's embedded within the community and and how we set up these systems and institutions. So it is really important to be able to tackle these problems to ensure that uh, women get the healthcare that they need um, and the support that they need, um, which will then, of course, benefit the community in so many ways. Um, I wanted to. Thank you so much, Kit, for joining us on the show no, this morning. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. No, thank you. Thanks, 3CR. You take care. That was um, Kit McMahon speaking to us just now from WISE, which is the Women's Health in the South East. Uh, if you'd like to read this report that we mentioned, uh, make sure you check our show notes after the show today. We're going to jump into another track now. Uh, this is by um, Nazareth-born artist Alal Ab- Abu Abne, and this is her song called Ena Felestinia.
Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, uh, 8.55am or streaming online at 3cr.org.au. Before that message was the song Ena Palestinia by Dalal Abu Amneh, um, singer from Palestinian singer from Nazareth. We're now going to replay for you a conversation that Marissa of Doin Time had with activist Pamela Kerr about a landmark court ruling that paves the way to end indefinite detention of asylum seekers. And while this is an important step in the right direction, Pamela also explains why there is more work to be done for the justice and human rights of all refugees and asylum seekers that have suffered the damage of our government's cruel and inhumane policies. We are going to be speaking with Pamela Kerr, who is a veteran activist working over many years with asylum seekers and refugees, and she also did some work at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. And we're going to be speaking with Pamela about a very important step in the right direction. Australia is to release asylum seekers in indefinite detention after a landmark ruling that paves the way to end the indefinite detention of asylum seekers. Hello, Pamela, welcome. Hi, Marissa. There's been quite scanty information in the media. Would you just be able to set the record straight and tell us the background and where the ruling, what court the ruling took place and and just what's going on? Sure. Uh, Last Wednesday, um, the the High Court, full bench, uh, heard the case on Tuesday and Wednesday. Now... Normally, the High Court, when they have a full bench uh, hearing, it can take some months for a decision to come through. But because of the particular nature of this, um, they surprised everyone by handing down a decision late on Wednesday afternoon. And what a decision it was. To be quite honest, there's a lot of us old activists who never thought we would see this day. So it is so welcome. What they said was that... Basically, they overturned what had been the previous situation where people could be held in Australia in immigration detention for their entire lives and never be released. And the people who could be held could be on a number of reasons. Some may have been to prison, but you didn't necessarily have have to have committed a crime. You could be held on some sort of character ground um, Perhaps you'd been questioned by the police um, about, you know, a noisy party or something, and then the police pass that information to the immigration department. They pick the person up, put them in detention, cancel their visa, and even when the police say, well, there's no case to, uh, to answer, we're not pursuing this, we're not charging him, you've had, the visa's been cancelled and the person sits there in detention at the minister's pleasure. And this has been going on now since the Al-Khateb decision back in 2003-04 when a Palestinian man um, who could not return to... He'd actually been born in Kuwait of 
Palestinian refugee parents. He had no country that would take him. And so the court said he could stay in detention for the rest of his life. Now, overturning that last Wednesday means that we had, and we still have, hundreds of people in detention, in indefinite detention, meaning they're just sitting there, they don't know when they're going to be released, and they're dependent upon the minister releasing them. So what happened, um, which is very rare in the immigration department, they got their act together, and on Friday we started to see the releases. We held our breath. There was great nervousness all round. Inside detention, people were waiting and hoping that they'd get the call. We in the community waiting for a call from someone we'd known for years and years. And so Friday and Saturday and even Sunday, um, 80 people were released from Yonga Hill, the detention centre over in WA, from the Biter, the one in Brisbane, from Billawood, the one in Sydney, and from the Mitre down the road here in Broadmeadows. It really is a miracle. So even from Mitre? Yes, even from wow. the Mitre. And so people came out. Now, some of them were lucky. They had family and they went home to family. But many, of course, don't. And some of them had been in detention up to 11, 12 years, you know. So anyway, um, some were released on no visas, but... The visas are being fixed today. Others came out on bridging visas. Now, the bridging visa are, you know, the immigration, I won't go into it because you know how complicated it is. Nobody can understand it except lawyers, and I'm not a lawyer. Um, but it does mean that um, we understand that they will have access to work rights and to Medicare and Centrelink, and they will not have uh, a permanent visa, but they will have um, a visa that is called a return pending. It sounds frightening and it is insecure, but there is no requirement that they arrange their return. So, um, I mean, it's, it's not perfect. Nothing's perfect except uh, get rid of this bloody system. But what it is, it's giving people a chance of life. So prior to this, laws allowing indefinite detention of asylum seekers have shaped Australia's border politics for the last two decades. So the government yes. was routinely holding people for a prolonged period of time, wasn't it? Some yes. for over a decade. Yes. yes. And, you know, we need to remind people this. I noticed that um, the opposition, of course, are carrying on as uh, these people are going to come out and do some heinous crime, blow up the world, which is, you know, amongst the people. Yes, there are people who've committed uh, serious crime and there are others who haven't at all. But, you know, this is the way it is in Australia. If somebody commits a crime and is found guilty and they do the time, they then come out and they restart their lives. Correct. And why shouldn't these people too? They're human beings too. Um, the other thing that I think it's important to note that uh, back, oh gosh, about six or oh, eight or nine years now, there was a group of people in detention. There were about um, 38 from memory, 38 or 39, who were 
to be a security risk. And they couldn't be released because uh, ASIO and everybody said they were a security risk. And they sat around in detention and most, most of them were Tamil, but there were a couple of others. And this went on and on until the government really couldn't bear it anymore because they were being so roundly criticised, particularly from the international human rights sector. So they sent in um, an ex-judge to exam- re-examine their cases and what did she find? They were no longer a security risk. It's just oh. like waving a magic wand. So they were released slowly here and there. And, you know, not one of those persons has created a problem. They're living in the community. They're working. Some got married. Some have had babies. They don't have proper visas, but they have a life. So, you know, over the 20 years, we've seen this sort of thing happen before. Where, and also, we shouldn't forget, Marissa, as you know only too well, people die in prison. Yes. People die in detention. And I have lost two friends, two men I knew, who one died on Christmas Island and one died on Manus. And they were there in indefinite detention. Both had been found to be refugees. Both should have been released, but they weren't. They were caught in this indefinite detention trap. So, you know, lives were lost under this policy. So this is why we're so overjoyed that finally the High Court saw reason and recognised the immorality and the cruelty of it, and got rid of it. So they're no longer stateless then? Well, they are stateless because they don't have a country to call their own, so they're here in Australia. Um, What happens next? Well, that will be um, something we'll be working on. I mean... The people are living will be living here on bridging visas. They won't have citizenship and they won't have a passport. But that's not to say that over time these things cannot be corrected. I hope um, so. Yes, we, we it, all hope so. And indeed, the, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees said the decision has got the potential to begin to align Australia's immigration detention practices with international law. Yes, it's a pity that some of these agencies weren't more outspoken over the last 20 years. But anyway, we have to be glad that um, they can see the light when it, you know, dawns on them. I mean, the people we have to thank for this, first of all, the people who held on, the courage and the determination to believe that one day they'd be free in detention. And, you know, they've gone through bad times. Some have been suicidal. Some have been really um, physically and mentally unwell. And they held on. And the other group, other lawyers, not too many people talk about lawyers, but these, over the 20 years, um, lawyers have consistently uh, gone trawled through the legislation. And some of them have gone to court with the cases and tried to challenge and overturn this um, and have been unsuccessful. But it hasn't deterred them. They keep at it and at it. And finally, there's a group of lawyers who've been able to unpick it to the extent that the High Court judges, the full bench, recognise the case and have 
um, overturned it. Do you have any final comments before we finish? No, look, I, I just urge people when they've, you know, we all know people saying, oh, gee, who are these people that are going to come out? What are they going to do? Just remind them, they're just people like us. And it, that it is unfortunate politics in this country to beat the drum and carry on as though people are a danger and a threat. Um, give them a break and let them make a new life. The people like us. So that was uh, Marissa Soprasso uh, speaking with veteran activist Pamela Kerr on Doing Time. You can catch Doing Time every Monday from 4 to 5 p.m. or listen to podcasts via 3cr.org.au slash doing time. We are going to go to a track now. This is a song by Kehlani who um, has truly been quite incredible in her activism for Palestine uh, online. Um, this one's called Alter. There is Alter by Kehlani. Piumi is a 19-year-old refugee activist who walked 640 kilometers as a part of Refugee Women Action for Visa Equality or Refugee Waves March from Melbourne to Parliament in Canberra, calling for an end to 10 years of visa uncertainty for 10,000 refugees living in Australia. Piumi came to Australia at the age of six with her mother and sister, leaving her brother and father behind. She is joining us this morning to talk about her experience living in Australia on an uncertain visa and the reflections of the March to Parliament. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Piumi. Thank you. 
So I was wondering if we could start um, by you just telling us a little bit more about your story. Um, why were you forced to come to Australia at age six? Um, I was forced to come to Australia because my mother was not in a safe position. Um, there was a couple of people chasing her in Sri Lanka due to um, trying to kill her. And the genocide in Sri Lanka has increased, which means our um, actual lives were at uncertainty. Yeah, and it must have been really difficult to make the choice to leave behind part of your family as well. Um, actually, that wasn't the plan. Uh, our whole family was supposed to leave uh, Sri Lanka to Australia, but um, we were uh, uh, half of our family uh, reached to um the place we had to leave, and the other half was coming on the uh, traveling to the place that we had to leave due to safety and leaving behind half of our family. So it was just a hard decision you had to make in that moment. Yes. Yeah, that's that is really difficult. Um, you know, you've been here for some time now. What has your experience been living in Australia in limbo without visa security? Um, I was actually six years old when I came here. Um, my mother told me that I was going to have a good life and Australia is going to be very welcoming for everyone. Um, that's what I expected. That's what I wanted. But throughout my high school, uh, primary school, high school, college life, I was looked at very differently. Um, I, it felt like I didn't fit in. Um, I, always, I always had to worry about being deported. I always had to worry about if I'm going to have a good life. Um, every pathway I try to get into, when I finished college and trying to get into university, I had something, uh, I had some barriers, like um, being labelled as an international student, not being able to study at certain universities, not even being able to be looked into studying Doctor of Medicine because um, I, was, uh, I was on the refugee visa and uh, people on permanent visas were prioritised. Yeah, and, you know, like, I think that for refugees, even migrants who have far more visa security than refugees, Australian the Australian government really kind of keeps people uh, on the edge and, you know, you you feel a bit, you, you never feel quite at ease here in Australia until you've got that permanent visa, um, you know, which is so much worse when you're a refugee and you've been sort of left behind through this fast-track process. Um, can you tell us what led you to join Refugee Wave and go on this march? Um, it's I came here when I was six, so it's been over um, 11 years. And smallest things, very small things started to um, mentally affect myself and my mother, um, such as uh, some of the Australians calling us out as being refugees, not being able to study properly and stuff. Um, I thought it would be better for me to walk the 640 kilometres and make, uh, have blisters, go through uh, seeing blood, everything, rather than um, just sitting here uh, waiting for the government to hear our voice. It, we just wanted the voices heard and we just wanted someone to listen. Like, we received so much support from the Australians. We only knew we had support during the walk. Even if we didn't do the walk, we wouldn't have realised there was so much supporters. What what sort of support did you encounter on the way? Did you meet people who, who were vocal about their support for you? Yes. Um, actually, uh, from accommodation to unions, um, 
every single day we had churches uh, volunteering to help us and giving us accommodation. Some of the churches uh, made us food, um, sat near us, talking to us, uh, comforting us. And we had people stop um, halfway, uh, stop their um, cars halfway through the road and uh, just coming up and talking to us, um, taking photos with us, posting it on their social medias. And we had unions support us, give us um, uh, food and stuff. We had so much um, supporters come in and it was really uh, amazing and it kind of uh, got us stronger in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The march began in September, is that right? Yeah, the march began on 22nd of September. And it only just finished last week. Um, Can you give us some of your reflections on the march and um, what the response was like at the end from the government? Um, from the start, uh, our, our women were not uh, like actually very scared. Um, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't have ideas on what was going to go on with. Um, but during the walk, we saw blood, tears, and um, it was really hard. Uh, like the food was getting hard and uh, accommodation. Uh, we were struggling a lot. Um, uh, throughout the walk, we had to see dead animals. Um, we had to cross rivers. It was really hard, um, but our mind, uh, we felt like our mental state was was in a worse condition. But uh, we just wanted something. Uh, we just wanted to hear something from the government, like, um, we'll, uh, we'll look into it. We'll, uh, we'll do something about it. Uh, we... Like, we've seen what you guys did. We just wanted to hear that. But by, by the end of the day, we didn't uh, we didn't hear anything from the government. It was really upsetting because we had a lot of supporters come in front of the Parliament House to welcome us. And we spoke to lots of MPs and um, senators, but uh, we didn't hear anything back from the government. That's quite disheartening. And it's in line with Australia uh, as well, their stance on Palestine at the moment, which is... Um, you know, so many people are protesting against uh, Israel's occupation in Palestine and the government seems to be turning a blind eye to that as well, um, which is really, yeah, really and unfortunate. Yeah, we support them. Um, we support the Palestine and Israel community as well. Just wanted to do Yeah, absolutely. I did see um, photos of Refugee Wave at the recent pro-Palestine march on yeah. socials, um, which is really, really great to see, you know. Uh, so... If you and so many other women like yourself are granted permanent visas and permanent residency here in Australia, what are you hoping your life in Australia will look like? Um, sorry, that was my <laughs> That's okay. um, So, uh, we just want, uh, when we get our permanent visas, we just want a pathway to students, uh, refugee student studies, for example, being changed from international students to domestic students so we can actually um, succeed in our goal. And uh, Because most of us want to become doctors, nurses, um, childcare workers, aged care workers. That's going to help the community, Australian community, a lot. We just want that. One of the women, uh, one of the 22 women that did the walk, uh, she has a three-year-old and a six-year-old who doesn't have Medicare. She's worried for their life. What happens if, uh, if something happens to their child? Um, she, she won't be able to uh, properly treat it because she doesn't have the money for it. Um, there's someone who doesn't have work rights, study rights. Um, we just want the rights 
that all the Australians have, that we can, so that we can live a, a, a like a really good life in Australia, because that's what we want, and that's how um, all the human rights should be. Absolutely, and. Just as a final question, Piyomi, what message do you have for the politicians that do have the power to grant you this uh, permanent residency? I just want to let them know that I just really want to, want them to hear our voices. I just really want them to give us a chance. We'll prove it when uh, when they give us the permanent visas. We'll prove um, how uh, how we can be Australian, how we can be Australian, how we can support the community. Um, we we can uh, succeed in uh, helping Australians. We just want that chance given. We just want the same rights as all these uh, other Australians that have permanent reasons, that have citizens. Absolutely, and I think that is uh, an incredibly basic ask. And, you know, here at 3CR, we also urge... Um, the government to listen to the voices of these incredible women who've been marching like yourself, Piyomi. That's unfortunately all we have time for today, but I wanted to thank you so much for joining us and, and talking to us about not only your story, but about your experience walking 640 kilometres to have your voices heard. Thank you. So that was 19-year-old refugee activist Piyomi, who recently walked 640 kilometres with Refugee Wave to urge the Australian government to give refugees in limbo permanent visas. You can follow Refugee Wave on Instagram at Refugee Women Action and on Facebook um, at facebook.com slash Refugee Wave. We are going to play you another track now. This one is by local artist Pookie. Um, who is a Tuesday breakfast favorite, and this one is called Flick. Flick, you said what? I said nothing. Something was in your head. By touching it, I think I spread it everywhere. Flick, you said what? I said love. It's you that my cranium is full of. That afro, your cranium is full of. I want to see it every time I pull up. Flick, you said what? I said snack. That's what you're looking like. There's nothing that you lack. Brighter than moonlight. Promise a womb bite. Morning, noon, night. Whenever the time's right. I'll tickle your eyesight. Renew your appetite. You know I got a rose hip. The one that you want to grip. Want to put your lips on. Yes, I'm from Krypton. Make it measly. Not just my physique, but everything that I speak. It's everything you seek, but enough about me. I know you got the key.
that was uh, a song by Pookie called Flick. All right, so we're excited today to have uh, Jaya Keeney in the studio with us. Jaya is a lecturer in gender studies at the University of Melbourne, where she researches and teaches in the areas of feminist technoscience, queer studies, and queer of colour theory. Uh, Jaya is here today to talk about her new and first book, I believe, Making Gabies, Queer Reproduction and Multiracial Feeling. Uh, Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Jaya. Thanks, Francis. Good to be here. Uh, So could you start by telling our listeners uh, a little bit more about um, what prompted you to do the research that became Making Gabies? Yeah, sure. Um, So Making Gabies at its broadest um, really explores queer reproduction and queer family making practices um, as a site of racialized intimacy. So I was really interested in thinking through um, questions of how race and racialized inheritance, racial desire... um, are kind of explored in uh, queer journeys to family. Um, And I suppose I've been interested in those themes of the relationship between um, queerness and race for a long time. As a queer woman of colour, that kind of intersection um, has always fascinated me. Scenes of kind of misrecognition um, in my own family of origin and from my own childhood have sort of prompted me to think Um, yeah, about this very curious kind of vexed interface between uh, the multiracial and the queer. Um, So that kind of is what pushed me on a personal level to be interested in this research. Um, And then more broadly, I guess I was fascinated by uh, the kind of reformulation of queerness that's um, happening, I think, has been happening for the past decade or so um, in relation to the reproductive So there seems to be um, this kind of change in how queerness is being articulated with reference to family and reproduction. So I was fascinated to dig into that a bit more. Mm, Yeah, so fascinating. And I think um, reading your book really um, highlighted those intersections for me, which seems so evident when you read the research that you've put together there, but which maybe are sometimes not spoken about enough. So you've talked about um, this sort of changing ideas of queerness in relation to reproductive technology or new norms for making family. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about um, what has recently changed in Australia in terms of um, queer family making? Yeah, sure. Um, So, I mean, I kind of refer to this in a slightly tongue-in-cheek way in the book as the gaby boom. Um, but the, I guess, potential for um, making families or making children um, in particular ways has really expanded in the past decade or two decades from the early 2000s uh, in Australia, uh, in particular, in other places as well. Um, but part of that has been liberalising kind of social attitudes, um, legislative changes Uh, that have made it more possible to kind of access formal recognition um, for uh, forms of queer family making and queer parent-child relationships. Um, That has kind of emerged on the back of a lot of fierce activism uh, from queer movements over decades to kind of um, bring those changes about. But another part of the uh, puzzle which the book's really focused on and which you alluded to is the expansion of... um, access to reproductive technologies and in particular I'm interested in this book 
in donor conception um, and surrogacy as these two kind of really keystone uh, technologies that have facilitated um, new forms of family creation for queer people, queer communities. Um, and so that's propelled, uh, yeah, new forms of family, but the queer community, I think, has this kind of vexed relationship with the fertility industry in the sense that um, since 78, when IVF um, first emerged, uh, it's created kind of manifold new pathways to parenthood for a lot of people, um, but it's also a commercial industry um, and so it's at the same time had this kind of impact of reformulating queer people as a market niche in many ways. And I think we see that increasingly um, today. So, yeah, I was interested in this in this vexed relationship of kind of queer people becoming um, parents in waiting or um, kind of reproductive citizens in these new ways, but also becoming entangled with some commercial imperatives. Mm. Yeah, it's it's so complex, isn't it? This sort of um, array of choice that you talk about and options that people have um, and the commodification that they can just have anything um, at the same time as um, some really difficult um, systems of oppression and capitalist influences, um, which uh, perhaps people have trouble navigating. Um, so in terms of when you've talked about the intersection of queerness and race, um, you say that there is, um, sort of choice around race that you can sort of choose, um, your own donor, um, and you look at their origins and where they're from and people trying to sort of match their family. Um, but you also talk about the weight of this choice, um, and an ongoing racism that people have to navigate. And I wondered if you could um, tell us a bit more what you found in your research, um, either from the people you interviewed or from um, other study that you did um, around the challenges people are facing as they try to navigate um, race likeness and also um, racism. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I should say the book is based on um, 27 interviews with amazing queer families um, in Australia who were really generous in sharing their stories um, with me about how they made families. And a really central thread that came out of that was multiracial family creation um, for a range of reasons, uh, including the constraints of the Australian fertility industry and the availability of um, donor sperm and eggs, which means that many of the parents and prospective parents I spoke to found themselves creating uh, multiracial families or um, families where the children had a different kind of ethnic or racialized identity um, than the parents. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, so a product of Australian kind of factors to do with limited um, uh, donor sperm supply, among other things. Um, but what I was interested in digging into was to kind of problematize this idea of choice for that reason. So the industry kind of globally um, produces this idea of a choosable or customizable um, traits for children and, and race becomes really important in structuring the industry. Um, there's not very much guidance, however, in kind of instructing parents as to how or prospective parents as to how they might make um, ethical or anti-racist choices within the industry. And at the same time, the industry um, also produces this kind of broader cultural idea a lot of us have of race as 
biological on some level as kind of derived from or located in sperm and eggs. Um, and we know how dangerous that idea is of kind of thinking that uh, people are separated into distinct biological types. And so when prospective parents enter the fertility industry, they have to reckon with those really difficult um, constructions of race, while at the same time perhaps not experiencing it like that in their daily lives. Um, so I was interested in exploring the very different ways that the people I interviewed navigated those racialized choices, but also felt um, attachments to forms of racialized belonging or identity that exceed the biological and exceed the heteronormative um, to think through you know, how we might conceptualize race differently um, as a space of feeling rather than distinct biological types. Mm. Yeah, and which draws the, our attention, I guess, to um, the fact that um, we do see queer families disrupting so many norms, that idea that we have of a sort of nuclear heteronormative family and that we have of um, this sort of racialized um, belonging, which is part of just biology and, and reproduction. Um, but it's so difficult when... Um, there's just so many challenges there and so much weight to push at norms um, and that sort of burden of um, shifting traditional ideas um, is obviously unevenly placed. Um, you finish the book with um, a bit of a manifesto saying, you know, what? how could this look different? What could we do differently? Um, and... Um, you suggest a couple of recommendations or different models. Um, can you explain your focus on care and what that would look like in this um, field? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the manifesto at the end, I love manifestos. I'm a sucker for them. I think they're <laughs> such a feminist genre. Um, and to turn to the manifesto at the end was a way of kind of offering something in closing um, that was also a bit of an opening that um, was something tangible but more about kind of how we might orient differently um, that wasn't a set of policy recommendations because they're not my forte and also I think when we're dealing with um, something like racialized desire it doesn't always kind of interface with policy um, but I was interested in care um, as a kind of counterpoint I suppose to the really narrow ideas of choice um, that frame the industry, the choices that people are asked to make um, about donors, um, and also the idea that choice is ever kind of unencumbered from things like queerphobia and racism. So whenever we make kind of choices, they're really um, saturated with those forces. Um, so care was not a turn to sort of a warm feeling or a kind of... Um, you know, the sort of thin ideas of self-care we sometimes uh, see, but it was more to think about what it might mean to think of care as a tangible kind of material practice um, we can do with our loved ones. Um, and there's a set of kind of principles in the book that maybe I'll just um, mention. So there's five principles that the manifesto is kind of comprised of that might help us think differently about the interface of queerness and... Um, racism and uh, reproduction broadly. So they're, number one, that race and reproduction are inseparable. And so when we talk about reproduction and reproductive kinship, we have to acknowledge that we're always talking about race um, because uh, kinship, reproduction is the, the engine of race. Um, 
Principle two is that reproduction is a collective project of becoming otherwise, and so it can be a site of transformation and remaking communities, visioning communities differently, um, even as uh, it might kind of take place in narrow ways at the moment. Um, the third is that racial identity is an open-ended practice that requires support. So instead of conceptualising race as this kind of um, binary thing or discrete biological types, thinking about racial identity as an important side of kind of self-making and collaging. Um, number four is that racism and queer phobia constitute our kinships. So there's no outside of them, but we can make sustaining our futures and forms of collective care from within that, that reckoning. And the, f- the final one, principle five, is that love is not a defence um, against claims of racism, but it's a powerful resource. And so rather than um, looking to queer love as a kind of colourblind force that might conquer all difference, um, which it can't, which it doesn't do, um, we might look at it as one resource through which we might kind of deal with or reckon with racism differently. Yeah, I love that. And I love um, the focus on a manifesto and um, that sort of call to action that isn't necessarily just through policy, but through really changing the way we think about some of these structures um, and seeing, yeah, I think um, that connection of love and care is really interesting, um, that love is so important, but we need to think about the um, systems of oppression at the same time and what we can do to um, address those. Um just thinking about um, listeners who might be interested in finding a little bit more um, information about this or who even want practical guidance themselves, um, are there any um, resources you would recommend or any groups? Um, Yeah, uh, so there's a podcast that has just dropped its first episode, I think, as of last week. Um, with some some friends of mine put it together. I think that some of them also have worked um, here on this station. Um, It's called Queer Brood and it is about a range of um, diversity of queer family making practices including um, conceiving children but also other forms of queer kinship and they really focus on um, kind of personal stories and and roots to um, family in that way Um, and it's Melbourne based so I'd really recommend that. There's also, uh, if people are interested in kind of more academic books, there's a book by um, Dean Murphy called Gay Men Pursuing Parenthood Through Surrogacy, which follows um, the journeys of a range of uh, gay men in Australia. Um, And there's also a classic book called Queering Reproduction by Laura Mamo, um, which I think came out in 2009 and is US-based, but it really explores the rise of what she calls Fertility Inc. and the kind of precursor lesbian reproductive practices Um, DIY practices that it kind of uh, replaced. Uh, That's um, amazing. I'm worried um, we don't have any more time um, this morning, unfortunately, Jaya. But I just wanted to say that um, Jaya is launching her book at um, The Alderman next week at 6pm on the 6th of December. um, And that's in Brunswick East at The Alderman. Um, so you can catch Jaya there and any more um, questions that you might have. Um, is there anything more you want to say before we wrap up? No, that's it. Please all welcome at the launch and there'll be copies for sale and drinks. 
That's it, yeah. Thanks so much. Um, and thanks uh, to Jaya Keeney, um, lecturer in Gender Studies at the University of Melbourne, uh, talking about her book, Making Gabies. Thanks. There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very, you know, important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support you're listening to 3cr community radio a5am on digital and online 3cr radical radio going to be a hot summer. Yay for summer! Summer brings swimming, summer brings picnics in the park, and summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. So find a shady spot, grab your picnic blanket and gather your mates to get your order in. We're selling delicious wine, generously provided by a Victorian wine producer, just in time for your summer gathering. This is a new provider to us and we know you'll love the wine. Wines can be purchased in a single bottle, a gift pack of three, or get a discount and order in a half dozen or one dozen lot. For an extra $10, we can deliver to anyone within a 15k radius of the station. It's easy to support 3CR this summer. Order online at 3cr.org.au slash shop or call the station on 03 9419 8377 during business hours. In the summer I went swimming, in the summer I might have drowned. But I held my breath, I kicked my feet and I moved my arms around. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Giselle Nayef is a Year 11 student, socialist activist and organiser with School Students for Palestine. Giselle joins us this morning to reflect on the school strike for Palestine that took place uh, last week on Thursday the 23rd of November. Welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Um, So I'm sure a lot of listeners saw the incredible footage of students taking over Flinders Street Station and Melbourne Central demanding a free Palestine. Can you give us your reflections on the rally? Definitely. I think the rally turned out so amazing. We had so many many more people than we expected. We had over a thousand, which is crazy. And it's so amazing to see how outraged students are with what's happening and how you know, we had to do something as students and people really showed up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that 
you know, there was a lot of feeling um, at that rally that was palpable through um, what we were looking at on socials. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how young people are feeling about um, the federal government's response to ongoing genocide in Palestine? Definitely, um, especially talking to other students. Um, when they were really given a safe environment to talk about this, everyone I spoke to was incredibly passionate about what was happening and we had a lot of people even join School Students of Palestine that were really just wanted to make a change, you know. Not only were these students defying the government by being there, but we were also defying our schools and our principals. Yeah, absolutely. And talking to other students and from your own experiences, is the ongoing occupation of Palestine being discussed openly in schools? Um, speaking for my school, definitely not. My school has a very right-wing agenda, which is forced on students. Every time I've ever spoken about a racist article that was given to us or a sexist teacher, I would immediately be shut down. So um, not at my school, no. But I think that's why it's so important for school students to have an environment where they can express their political opinions and their outrage for what is happening. Um, you know, school students are basically being told to just sit down and stay in their place. So many politicians spoke out about our strike before it even happened. I mean, even Peter Dutton said that he was, you know, he completely and utterly disagreed. You know, kids are here to learn. Um, you know, just into Allen says that we should be in school. But, you know, it's it's so amazing that so many people showed up and I think Socialist Alternative has done such an amazing job with that by creating School Students of Palestine and giving us a platform to really amplify our voices. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like you said, a lot of these uh, MPs and premiers from around the country, the things they've said have been quite condescending towards students, um, which doesn't actually make a lot of sense because, you know, students... Th- today are the leaders of tomorrow and and people who are going to be voting. Um, Why do you think that it's so important and powerful to have student-led demonstrations and prove them wrong? Yeah, I think that this is so important because, well, first of all, we were put in this position by our government. Um, The people in power, our principals, our MPs, um, we have no choice but to do something. And like so many people even were saying, you know, the kids will be okay after our demonstration on Thursday, which was so amazing to see. You know, we have to do something. We have to be aware. And, um, like, we're doing it again. We're doing it again on December 7th. And it's just, like, so amazing to see everyone there and defying people. Absolutely. I think there's something particularly powerful about... um, school children and, you know, people who are um, a bit younger actually taking to the streets and and making their voices heard, particularly because of how the children in Gaza are are currently being treated and are being killed. Um, So I do think there's something particularly powerful about the school strikes for Palestine. Can you tell us a bit more about the rally happening on uh, Thursday, the 7th of December? Definitely. So we're doing another strike, just like the last one. We're meeting at 1.30, Flinders Street Station steps, and we're going to march. We need to keep pushing for the end of this blockade, and we need to put pressure on our government. 
Um, it's also really important that if any parents are listening, that they bring their kids. We had so many parents bring primary school kids and come with their kids to show support. 100%. And just as a final question this morning, do you have any messages for any students that might be listening to the show today? Definitely. You have a voice and you are so powerful in society. I mean, students have a very specific place and when we remove ourselves, from that place, people notice. When we walk out, people notice. Even if today you stick up for yourself or, you know, you say what you feel is right about a political issue or you say something left-wing in front of someone that's right-wing, you know, you're helping yourself and you are doing good. Absolutely. And I just love that, um, you you know, the strikes are really proving a lot of politicians wrong about um, students being able to be involved in these conversations and, and absolutely have a voice and make a change. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all we have time for this morning, Giselle. But thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate everything that you and all the other um, students are doing for Palestine. Thank you. So we've been chatting with Giselle Nayef, Year 11 student, socialist activist and organiser with the School for Students for Pal- uh, School Students for Palestine. A reminder that the next school strike for Palestine is planned for next Thursday, the 7th of December. Uh, you can follow at school, school Students for Palestine with the number four on Instagram for updates. This Thursday, the 30th of November, there will be a vigil organized by teachers and school staff for Palestine as well. You can join educators, school staff, parents and students at 6pm this Thursday outside the State Library. Well, that conversation brings us to the end of our show this morning. We've had a big show um, starting with a conversation with Kit McMahon from WISE, uh, This conversation was a part of our 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence, which is an annual campaign that kicks off on the 25th of November, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Um, We spoke to Kit this morning about uh, the latest report from WISE, Return to Equity, Health and Economic Dividends from Investing in Women's Health Services. At 7.30, we spoke, We uh, revisited a conversation from Doing Time where Marissa Spasaro speaks with veteran activist Pamela Kerr about a landmark court ruling that paves the way to end the indefinite def- uh, detention of asylum seekers. This is a really important step in the right direction. Um, as we heard in our interview right after with Piumi, a 19-year-old refugee activist who recently walked 640 kilometers as a part of uh, Refugee Women Action for Visa Equality or Refugee Waves March from Melbourne to Parliament in Canberra, calling for an end to 10 years of visa uncertainty for 10,000 refugees here in Australia. Uh, at eight, we heard from Jaya Keeney, a lecturer in gender studies at the University of Melbourne. And Jaya talked about to us today about her new book, uh, Making Gabies, which looks at queer reproduction and the intersections of uh, race and queerness in making families. Um, you can 
go to uh, Jaya's launch next week um, at the Alderman next Thursday, 6pm to hear more. And just then we ended our show uh, speaking with Giselle Nayef, a year 11 student who has been active in the school strikes for Palestine. The next one is coming up on the 7th of December and you can follow our at school students for Palestine on Instagram for updates. So that brings us to the end of our show this morning. Stay tuned to breakfast shows throughout the week. And we will, of course, be back next Tuesday. Stay tuned now for Accent of Women. It's going to be a hot summer. Yay for summer. Summer brings swimming. Summer brings picnics in the park. And summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. So find a shady spot, grab your picnic blanket and gather your mates to get your order in. We're selling delicious wine, generously provided by a Victorian wine producer, just in time for your summer gathering. This is a new provider to us and we know you'll love the wine. Wines can be purchased in a single bottle, a gift pack of three, or get a discount and order in a half dozen or one dozen lot. For an extra $10, we can deliver to anyone within a 15k radius of the station. It's easy to support 3CR this summer. Order online at 3cr.org.au slash shop or call the station on 03 9419 8377 during business hours. In the summer I went swimming, in the summer I might have drowned. But I held my breath, I kicked my feet and I moved my arms around. Around. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.